0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other, and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org.
1: So many of us have been getting through this pandemic by watching movies at home by ourselves or with friends on Zoom, inventing new ways to grieve and to hope, to keep ourselves laughing, all through the simple act of watching stories unfold on our screens. Movies have the power to help us get closer to ourselves, to unearth the many layers of our identities, to answer the question, who am I? That question is at the heart of the third and final season of our delightful On Being Studios podcast, This Movie Changed Me, and we'll get a taste of that this hour. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. This Movie Changed Me is hosted by our very own movie-loving executive producer, Lily Percy, and she will be our guide. I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field and don't notice it.
2: Are you saying it just want to be loved, like I say in the Bible?
0: Yeah, silly. Everything want
2: to be loved. Us sing and dance and holler,
0: just trying to be loved. When Roger Ebert wrote his review in 1985 of The Color Purple, he started it by saying, There is a moment in Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple when a woman named Celie smiles and smiles and smiles. That was the moment when I knew this movie was going to be as good as it seemed, was going to keep the promise it made by daring to tell Celie's story. It is not a story that would seem easily suited to the movies. Ebert was so right. When you read Alice Walker's book, it's hard to imagine that it could ever really thoughtfully and truly be portrayed by a movie. And yet that's what Spielberg did in bringing that story to life. The story of Celie, a black woman living in the early 1900s in the Jim Crow South, who lived her life fully and imperfectly in spite of the violence, hatred, and racism that surrounded her. The Color Purple, both the movie and the book, has inspired poet Dinez Smith's work. Their books of poetry are powerful and speak of messy, complicated truths, the same way that the story in The Color Purple does. And that's one of the things that Denez was really struck by when they watched the movie. It was the first time that they were watching a black woman from beginning to end, that they were seeing this black woman's life, their whole life, on screen. I want you to travel back in time with me for a second. Um, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about the first time that you saw the color purple. You know, who you were with, how old you were, how it made you feel. And I'm going to look at the clock for 10 seconds and and I'll chime back in when the 10 seconds are up. So tell me what memories came up for you.
2: Oh, I just thought about thought about being in my mom's room where I watched so many movies when I was a kid. Luckily, my mom was a single mom. So we had like a one-on-one relationship and I was the only child. She really didn't like kids movies, so I watched all her favorite movies with her. Stuff I was probably a little bit too young for at an early age. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know how old I was because it feels like I've been watching The Color Purple my whole life. That's one of my mom's favorite movies, and it's my favorite movie. And I actually just watched it with her again for this on uh, this weekend.
0: Oh,
3: my God. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. I That's was like so cool. I-,
2: I told her, I was like, oh, I, was like, I have to watch The Color Purple for this interview. <laughs> Do you want to watch it with me? And she said, yeah, come over. And so we just watched The Color Purple
0: i remember in an interview you talked about how you had always like you said growing up with this movie and you can't remember really a time where it wasn't around but that Mm -hmm. the book really kind of brought this whole other layer to understanding the characters in the movie and when did you read the book when
2: i was probably a teenager probably uh 14 15 i want to say and i never thought to pick up the book because i knew the movie so well and the book was just tucked in our in a little shelf we had downstairs that kind of was like for forgotten books in the house you know Mm. my mom was an avid reader and one day i picked it up and just thought i was gonna you know see basically what i saw in the film and i was amazed at how Different it was, how queer it was, how rich yeah. it was. The the form of the letters that we that you lose in the movie a little bit, and it it was so interesting to see. I guess for me, I think that's the first time maybe Spielberg's hand was illuminated a little bit in mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah, because uh, it feels like such a black classic to me, and it is. You know, I think it is a black film at the end of the day. I'm for black. I may even be ugly, but dear God, I'm here. I'm here. Hey, you'll be back. <laughs> hey, hey, what you gonna do? Hey, you'll be
4: back.
0: <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what Celie means to you and like why you love her character so much. I think
2: Celie reminds me of so many women in my family who who found each other um, and who maybe found them, and hopefully, and probably later. I think that's the thing about Celia is that she, her freedom comes late. And I've seen that with so many women in my family where they find themselves after living under and for these men for so long, right? With these sort of multiplying and 811 kids running around them. I just flat out like see like my grandmother, you know, and people who carved out tenderness um, while living in these complicated homes. Celie was always just so beautiful to me. I love I was just saying that to my mom. I was like, oh, it's like it's weird that they try to cast Celie as the ugly girl in this whole yes. film because I love Whoopi Goldberg's exactly. face. Exactly. She's movie. played by oh. Whoopi
0: Goldberg and she's so beautiful. And especially when she smiles, it lights up the whole screen. I don't yes. understand it.
2: And I think I'm, I'm always going to cheer for the person who, who had to learn how to smile. And I'm going to cheer for her smile all the way through. And, and that's why I cry every time in that film. It's so powerful. Yeah. And I think the because Seeley maybe for me was the first type of story where I think you get to see a character all the way through. Yeah, Where you get to love somebody's whole life. I think that's why. And I think I love those type of stories, right? Like even when I'm going to my grandparents and my uncles and stuff like that, the way they tell their stories, even though I wasn't there, I get to love their whole life a little bit. Yeah, And I love that type. I, get, I think that's what I love is I feel like the color purple for me maybe captures stories, you know, stories that have existed in my family for centuries. And I get that glimpse into the lives of people I've loved that I that I just wasn't there to get to imagine or take part in. Dear Sealy, the reason why I'm in Africa is because one of the missionaries that was supposed to go with Corinne and Samuel to help with the children and setting up the school, suddenly married a man, and that I came, came in, in her, her place. place. I wrote, I wrote a, a letter, letter to you
0: almost every day every on the day. ship. On my first side of the Africa coast, something struck in me, in my soul see like a large bell. Then I just vibrated.
2: That is the sort of blues note of the color purple right yeah. is that there is that everything is kind of the good is tinged with the sad of it and the sad always finds its way to to jubilee or to some type of some type of joy some type of release some type of desire right i think like the characters are like kind of always or never in crisis, you know, they, yeah. they sway in and out of it. Right. Yeah. And we see the long narrative, right? Like, um, and of course, then it makes the feelings messy um, and un- it makes the story complicated. It, it can never be clean as we want it to be. It's still a messy truth.
0: You know, Dennis, I feel like everything you just said encapsulates your writing. Because when I read your your poetry, I feel like that's what you do. I mean, you tell the truth about sex, about longing, about intimacy, about pain, about racism. I mean, you just speak so many truths in the way that you talked about the blues uh, as it's shown in the movie. I, I think that does that resonate at all with you? Because when I read your poetry, I feel the same way.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, part of the prevailing like... Uh, thought in my poems it's like everything can be is going to be true at once you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> just like um, life right? it all, all the <laughs> yeah. feelings it's
2: all it. the time exactly you know how are you is a very complicated question right? because yeah. it's just like you know do you want to hear about the ways in which my life is blessed and my, the ways my life is cursed and mm-hmm. the ways my life is working itself out and I, I think to invite that type of messiness to the poems, I think, you know, it's not an invention of mine. I think it's it's the that's the work that I've found most compelling when I find it other places. And so and so I follow that that note that people like Alice Walker have laid out to embrace that high, low, everything feeling of life. And and to let life, you know exists um, best within that brilliant complication that lives somewhere between the joy and pain of a single experience, you know, or or of a multitude of experiences, Mm. right? And like, and to let that life then be transformed by the lives around it. You know, that's what Celie's doing the whole time. Every woman she meets, every person she encounters transforms her life in so many ways. And I think that's also what I'm trying to do in poems a little bit, both as I I think in the poems, too, right? Trying to talk about that intimacy and like how we get through this together and amongst each other and also how... I guess how I approach being a reader too, right? Is yeah. that like, I'm trying to read and be transformed by the writers that I'm reading right now, right? And, and that, that also is a kind of like intimacy and love and community making too, right? To say that like, hey, like, this is whose work I moved through that has like refigured me and who I have to like encounter my own work in new ways too. ¶¶
1: To Tippett, and this is on Being. Today, asking the question Who am I? Through Movies We Love, guided by Lily Percy.
0: You don't really need to know much about David Cronenberg's horror classic The Fly to understand the premise, but here's what you do need to know. Jeff Goldblum plays Seth Brundle, this genius scientist who is inventing teleportation. But his plans go awry when a little fly ends up in one of the machines, and that begins his slow and horrific transformation into a six-foot fly.
5: Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I took them to a lab. I had them analyzed.
4: Yeah, that's a strange thing to do.
1: Not as strange as the results. The guy at the lab had trouble identifying them. He finally came to the conclusion that they were definitely not
5: human. Oh, (laughs) very good. Not human, Seth. In fact, very likely insect hairs.
0: For Tony Banute, who works with Interfaith Youth Corps, The Fly is an interpretation of the Icarus story of the reality of what happens when someone flies too close to the sun and when you let your ego convince you that you know more than everyone else.
6: You know, I just don't think I've
4: ever given me a chance to be me, but of course, interestingly, at the exact same
6: moment that I uh, achieved what'll probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, listen. (laughs) And uh, Not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individually. But it is uh, uh, nevertheless also certainly true. I will say now, however uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently <coughs> purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million
4: bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a uh, uh, cannoli after all. Waiter! I mean, what
6: an accomplishment. But what have I really done? though? All I've done is say to the world, let's go, move, catch me if you can. Waiter, Jesus Christ.
0: As we're talking, there was a really great piece in the website Film School Rejects. And it's uh, one of their columnists, Brian Salisbury. He described Jeff Goldblum's character, Seth Brundle, as a character whose greatest flaw at the onset of the film is a relentless desire to advance the boundaries of knowledge. He proceeds with his teleportation experiment with the express intention of bettering humankind. But in the process, however, he is graphically robbed of every aspect of his own humanity. Mm. And that's so well written and so astute as to what happens to him. So, that,
3: yeah, it really is. And and so there's this balance, I think, in social change work by this fervor. And I certainly felt this more when I was in my, my late teens, early 20s and just coming to activism of like wanting to change the world mm. and being a little bit on fire about yeah. that. Yeah. And also and having the confidence being, that you could do it. Having the confidence you could do it, maybe the ego to think you could do it—it's actually a good thing to want to do. <laughs> I'm yeah, still involved in that. It is, but the the dangers of not paying attention to those you're in relationship with while you're doing that has the potential of robbing you of something very valuable.
0: Can you give me an example of those early days when you felt that way when you came into that your activism and felt I'm going to change the world and realizing it wasn't so simple.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think after college, I was living in D.C. and I was part of a a broader social group that included Catholic workers and and other anti-war activists. And there was this just fervent conviction that the system was through and through rotten. Hmm. And we needed a sense of like Christian anarchism was the solution and hmm. we could do this. And if you weren't down with this, you were just irrelevant, right? Yeah. Um, there's actually, you know, a case to be made. But I think the way you make the case matters a lot. Yeah. And, and the way in those years that I was writing off those who disagreed, I think was the problem. Mm. Um, It wasn't so much, and this is still true the way now I think about civic life, it's not so much one's conviction as much as how one orients or relates to those of different conviction. Mm. This is constantly the balance in a diverse democracy, broadly speaking, but just in our personal lives, like holding true to what you think and what you believe in your conviction and holding space to meet others where they – are and experience them without needing to evaluate or judge mm. or predetermine yeah. that was was i did not do that well right that, that was like so, that was not part of the world i was in and it was not part of my posture toward my my work or what i thought it meant to be an activist
0: so how did you come to learn that
3: you know, assuming I have learned it not to <laughs> any degree, you know, I think maybe if what middle age has given me and, and for whatever deeper reflection is is worth, like the greater sensitivity to the, the connective tissue of the whole and how we are held together both inextricably and, and inexplicably, protecting that has taken – more of a priority for me than pushing my particular position or understanding of the truth. Mm-hmm. So I hope that's made me a little bit softer and more understanding and more easy to get along with and present to people.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like you you've gotten to a place where, had you know Brundle not become a fly, <laughs> he may have gotten to in his best sorry. version of himself. <laughs>
3: Yeah, so the, the way I read it is like, this is the dystopic possibility, yes. you know, in, in this wildly dramatized sci-fi, gross way. So what the film does for me is push those questions and themes by framing them in a, here's how it goes wildly wrong mm-hmm. scenario, <laughs> right? Yes. You know. This could happen yeah. to
0: all of us.
1: You can hear the full episodes of all of the conversations in this hour in season 3 of On Being Studios podcast This Movie Changed Me. Subscribe wherever podcasts are found and find four new episodes there right now. Coming up, the movies Real Women Have Curves, Blockers, and Selena. I'm Krista Tippett on Being continues in a moment.
3: One,
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today a taste of the new and delightful third season of our On Being Studios podcast, This Movie Changed Me, hosted by Lily Percy.
0: The movie Selena tells the story of the iconic Tejano music singer played by Jennifer Lopez. But it also tells the story of Selena's father, Abraham, played by Edward James Olmos, and the struggles he faced as a Mexican-American living and working as a musician in a segregated United States. His experiences influenced the
6: way that he helps his daughter to shape her career. Overreacting as usual. the music will speak for itself, Dad. Listen, being Mexican-American is tough. Anglos, jump all over you if you don't speak English perfectly. Mexicans jump all over you if you don't speak Spanish perfectly. we got to be twice as perfect as anybody else. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Why, what's so funny? Nothing. I'm serious. I'm not Our family sure has that. been here for centuries, and yet they treat us as if we just swam across the Rio Grande. I mean, we got to know about John <laughs> Wayne and Pedro Infante. we got to know about Frank Sinatra and Agustin Lara. we got to know about Oprah and Cristina anglo food is too bland and yet when we go to mexico we get the runs now that to me is embarrassing no, japanese americans italian americans german americans their homeland is on the other side of the ocean <laughs> no. ours is right next door right over there and we got to prove to the mexicans how mexican we are and we got to prove to the americans how american we are we got to be more mexican than the mexicans and more american than the americans both at the same time it's exhausting man Nobody knows how tough it is to be a Mexican-American.
0: Shea Serrano is a writer, and he's also Mexican-American from Texas, just like Selena. Shea grew up never dreaming that being a writer was a possibility for him. He was working class. And for him, seeing Selena hold all of these identities, singer, fashion designer, businesswoman, it meant that he could be more than just what he knew in his own family and community, that he could dream really big. So, you know, talking about that scene in the car between Selena and her brother and her dad, you know, in your book, Movies and Other Things, you tell this really wonderful story that I feel like illustrates so many of the things that they're talking about in that scene. Um, it's a story of you working at, um, is it Cece's Pizza? Oh, yeah. Is
7: Cece's that how you say pizza, it? Pizza, yeah. 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 Um
0: I'd love to read a part of it, if you don't mind, just because it's, it's so well written. And I'd love to just hear you talk about it. Okay. Um, so...
7: All right, go nuts.
0: You were talking about uh, working in this pizza place and, you know, you were there with a couple of other guys who were also Mm -hmm. Mexican-American and also Mexican immigrants, right? So, like, it was a different scenario than one you had been in. Yeah. And then you say, I remember telling them that I was in school just as a general piece of chit-chat one day. And I remember them making fun of me, hand to God, for like a week straight about it. They'd say things about how I wasn't a real Mexican because I'd gone to college. And they'd say things about how I thought I was white because I'd gone to college. Just a bunch of dumb shit like that. And I mean, I wish I could tell you that I was smart enough at the time to be able to explain to them how backward it was for them to think that only white people went to college and that the heat from the pizza ovens bonded us in unexpected and very meaningful ways. That they both ended up enrolling at the school where I was enrolled, and we all graduated together and advanced our family names, but that's not how that particular situation played out.
7: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that experience and how you connected to Selena.
7: Okay, well, so the the scene we're talking about is the thing about you, you're having to to balance, basically, two identities. As you mentioned, this was like I, you know, my second or third year in college, something like that. Just trying to make a little my little minimum wage money so I could spend it on whatever. And I <laughs> met those guys. We were all working, like making the pizzas, throwing them in the oven together. So a, a couple of Mexican dudes and I thought we were going to be buddies. You know, I was living, this was in Huntsville, Texas, the school up there, didn't have like a very big Mexican population. I was excited that I was like, oh, I remember these faces. Like this feels a little bit like San Antonio. And then we started, they started like laying into me about being a, being a college boy. And I remember mm-hmm. having that exact that exact same conversation before I even left for college. My friends, uh, people I had grown up with were like, oh, you're like abandoning the neighborhood or whatever. Like you should be working down the street, not going to college, this whole thing. So yeah, that, that just always sort of stuck with me. And then I, you know, as you mentioned it, it didn't work out great for me. I ended up being like the worst of the group because what ended up <laughs> happening was one of the guys there, his last name was very similar to my name and they mixed up our paychecks one day, like the payroll did. And he was working full time and I was doing, you know, part-time college hours, 10 hours, five hours a week or whatever. And I got his check and it was for like 480 something dollars, 500 bucks or whatever. And I was just like, I just kept it. <laughs> I just cashed the check; it had my name on it, and I quit the job and I left, and like that was it. And I can remember thinking, like, I wonder if they thought this was like a cool Mexican thing to do.
0: Mm. If they,
7: if they, like, did they approve of that or, or it was all backwards. It was all turned around. Yeah, um, it was all really dumb. But like, that's just the sort of the sort of stuff that happens in in your brain.
0: Yeah. How did you come to make peace with that, though? The idea that you could be educated and still be Mexican, still be true to your, your family, your community?
7: You know, I think that's the very first time anybody has ever asked me that question. And I don't know that I have a very good answer for it because that's still very much a thing. That's the yeah. a thing that I think about a lot. That's a, that's like a myth that is still out there. I do a lot of like a uh, speaking engagements at different schools and like that's always the primary point we're trying to like get across to these kids is like being Mexican doesn't mean not being able to like do certain things. It doesn't, it, it doesn't mm. mean anything except that you're Mexican. So th- it's still something I, I think a lot about. I live in a neighborhood now there's like our little cul-de-sac. We There's not another Mexican family in there. It's like that part of town. There's not a lot of Mexicans on that side of town. Like you feel it in certain spaces, in certain rooms, so I don't know how to like deprogram my own brain let alone somebody else's from feeling that way.
0: Yeah, I relate to that a lot. I think when you are different from either the the community that you come from or even just have different jobs than your family members and different experiences, it's so hard to reconcile your desire for something different, right? From what they experienced. Yeah.
7: Yeah, because you get, you have enough conversations with with like your people. Uh, my dad, for example, works as a he drives a bus for the city. He worked he's been there for thirty three years, going on thirty four years. He's getting up every morning at like three something, right into work, and then driving the bus for ten hours and then going home. My mom worked at a corner store for twenty nine years, just like at a stop and go or whatever. Mm-hmm. My my uncle does landscape and irrigation. Like these are hardworking. Jobs, and I sit down at a table with them, and they're talking about work, and I'm like, "Oh, I sat in my office and like played on the internet for six hours, and I went to <laughs> and I went to go watch a movie, and like that's what my job looks like, and it looks yeah. so much different than theirs." And and there's always like, I don't know if I'm putting this sort of tension in there myself or or what, but yeah, when you're in a space where where people are not doing the the same sort of thing that you're doing, it does sort of tint the relationships a bit.
0: Yeah. It makes it so complicated because Mm -hmm. um it can be seen as rejection, right? Of 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 them and of who they are and what they do unintentionally.
7: Yeah, they can be feeling that way. I can be feeling that way. We can all just sort of we can all be feeling a certain kind of way and not being able to explain it exactly. But we know that it's there.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today asking the question, who am I? Through Movies We Love, guided by Lily Percy.
0: Blockers is a sex comedy, but it's a sex comedy directed by a woman, Kay Cannon. So it has depth and layers that you don't normally expect from this movie genre one of the most intimate, vulnerable, and aspirational movies about sexuality and gender that I've ever seen, and it's also really funny. The movie tells the story of three teenage girls who want to lose their virginity on their prom night. But it's also about their parents, mourning the loss of their kids, watching them grow up, and learning to let them go. Because Blockers is a comedy, you wouldn't expect to watch it and have a profoundly personal and revelatory experience. But that's exactly what happened to Emily Vanderwerf. She's a writer and the critic at large for Vox. And when she saw Blockers for the first time, she realized that the movie was showing her something that she couldn't have ever even imagined, a life for herself as a trans woman. So I'd love for you to just close your eyes for for a couple of seconds and just, I'm going to take you back in time to the first time that you saw that movie. Okay. So just close your eyes and think about how old you were. This is only two years ago, so hopefully this is not a difficult exercise. How old you were, um, where you were and how it made you feel. And then I'll just chime in when those 10 seconds are up. So
4: tell me what memories came for you. Well, first of all, As I am a lady, I will say I was in my 30s when I saw this film.
0: (laughs) You and I are the same age. So I'm right there with you. Go ahead.
4: (laughs) Um, I went and saw this movie at a press screening, and I think it was March of 2018. I came out in late March of 2018, and it was because of a barrage of different things from different quarters that hit me at, like, exactly the same time. Hmm. And the first one of those things was Kay Cannon's 2018 film, Blockers. Wow. Like, I was expecting to enjoy it because I had heard from people that it was quite funny and quite good. Mm -hmm. And my wife was there with me, and, you know, we laughed a lot.
3: This is so messed up. Who are you to get involved in our daughter's sex life? Oh, honey, I was just no, trying no, to... No, honey me. Did your dad try to stop you when you lost your virginity? It's totally different. It is not different. It's a double standard. Oh, when a guy loses his virginity, it's it's no big deal. It's, it's celebrated, but if a girl does, it's some sort of big loss of innocence? Yes. But come on, you guys. It's the
1: same damn thing. Oh, uh, Marcy, stop talking. Just give us the address. Just give us the address. Honestly, Lisa? I can't believe you're on their side. Side? This is not some philosophical debate. We're trying to stop our daughters from some kind of sex pact that they've planned and not thought through all the way. That is such bullshit.
3: How do you expect society to treat women as if they're equal when their own parents won't? I don't know about that. I'll deal with society tomorrow. Right now, I'm thinking about my daughter.
0: I mean, I don't know if this is a stretch at all, but you know, as you were talking, I thought, one of my favorite characters in the movie is Hunter, the dad played by Ike Barinholtz, um sure. you know, who's the father of Sam, you know, who's a lesbian in the movie. And, you know, I I can picture Hunter, like, let's say that, that Sam's character was trans. I could picture Hunter saying the exact same things that he says about her mm-hmm. as a lesbian. Like, he's just, yeah. on the surface, he's so obnoxious and ridiculous and, like, this, like, caricature of a womanizer But then throughout the movie, you realize he is the most not only perceptive, um, one out of the three parents, but the most vulnerable and kind to her. You know, even though he's his daughter isn't publicly out as a lesbian, like he's always known and really wants to protect her right to decide when other people know and 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 her right to have that experience in a beautiful way. And it's, it's one of the most tender things about the movie.
4: I've made lots of mistakes, but the big mistake is that I let what happened between your mom and I get in the way of our relationship. I'm sorry. And I hope that we can start over and build up our relationship again, because you're my only kid and I'm your only dad.
1: Dad, can I tell you something now?
4: Yes, 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 anything.
1: I'm a lesbian.
4: What does your mom think?
1: She doesn't know.
4: You told me before you told your mom? Yeah. That's big news. She doesn't know.
3: You didn't tell Frank.
0: I'm just curious, like, what the character of Sam watching that and even watching his interaction with her as her dad meant for you.
4: I um, don't have a relationship with my father anymore. I, I don't want to say it's over forever. You know, it could change. He could change, but he has refused to acknowledge me as I am and I feel as far as bars go call me Emily use she her pronouns is about as low as you can get Yeah. Uh, everybody else in my life who's not my mother or my father does that the people who don't I block on Twitter like I can't even think about that it's not that it's like foreign to me i can imagine a girl whose single dad said you're trans cool we're going to figure that out i have i have written that girl into some of my work Hmm. i can't imagine it for myself it feels like a like something too hot to touch i had recently sort of been exploring the idea of telling a story about myself if i had you know gone through the right puberty if I was still trans but I had started taking pills and I just like I couldn't do it I couldn't look at it it was too painful but it was also too unbelievable the women I know who transition in adulthood are women who have intense trauma often around parental relationships because their parents often stand in the way of them yeah. I can't look at that idea I I I the, the idea you just presented I can't look at it even when I write it, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I desperately, desperately wish it was just the norm. There's such a pathology. There's such an idea of like, I honestly, I'm, I'm thinking about this in terms of the Leslie Mann character.
3: Mm.
4: You have these ideas about what your child is going to be. You have these ideas about what your child is going to do. You have these fantasies of the person your child is going to become one of my best friends has a five-year-old daughter and she's watching as her daughter very quickly becomes a different person from the one that she thought she had. And like, she's cool with that. She's a great mom. She's like, she's like rolling with it. But what a, what a hard thing to give up on. What a hard thing to give up on this idea you had of, you know, who your child might've been. I don't, I don't think it's wrong to mourn that. I don't think it's wrong to grieve that. I think it is wrong to get stuck there. I think exactly. it is wrong to insist that your version of reality is their version of reality. And I think that's where that's where these relationships break down. So in conclusion, I wish that my dad had been Ike Barinholtz from the movie Blockers.
0: Oh, you know, one of the things that I love about watching movies over and over again when they're good is I always feel like the more I watch them, the more I learn and grow. And I kind of grow together alongside the movie. I'm just curious for you, because of the fact that you saw this before you came out as a trans woman publicly, and um, and presumably you've watched it since,
4: like how you've grown together, how you and Blockers have continued to grow together. I think I've only seen this movie one time since. You know, I saw it on cable at some point. I saw part of it. I didn't see all of it. I saw part of it on cable. And I rewatched it. I was like, this is still a very charming movie. It didn't hit me with the same weight because Mm -hmm. I was out. You know, I was out. I was already on hormones. I was like, this is fun. This is a fun movie. And like, that was kind of all it was. And I think the movies that change us, the TV shows that change us, the, the things we consume that make us the people we are, we often leave them behind blockers was immensely important to me when i saw it that night in march 2018 and almost started crying at this sex comedy everybody else was laughing at because i saw so desperately the life i should have led but now i'm leading that life i don't need to be reminded that it could have existed because i'm there
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today asking the question, Who am I? Through Movies We Love, guided by Lily Percy.
0: Real Women Have Curves tells the story of Anna, played by America Ferreira in her first starring role, and Anna's mother, Carmen, played by Lupe Onteveiros. Anna is Mexican-American and living in an immigrant household while also navigating a very American high school experience. The relationship between Anna and her mother is a tense one. We see them fight, we see them struggle, but all throughout, we also see this raging love that is at the center of that relationship. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard to watch the two of them on screen. You know that they want to communicate with each other. You know that they want the best for each other. But they are missing each other completely.
4: No, Mama, aren't you hot? Hi, Dejame! Mama, what's that scar?
0: This one? This one is you. That's a big scar.
6: See. Si. Look at you.
2: Look at all
0: of you.
7: This is who we are, Mama. Real women.
6: desvergonzadas. Doña Carmen. let her go. Goodbye, Mama. Adios, Dona Carmen.
0: The relationship between Anna and Carmen is one that writer and activist Virgie Tovar is very familiar with. By watching them together on screen, Virgie came to fully understand the generational grief that the women in her family held and passed down and how it's shaped the complexity of their lives. I'm just curious, when you think about the trajectory of your life and and kind of alongside this movie, how the two of you, how you and Real Women Have Curves have grown together, what you've continued to learn as you've gotten older.
5: Mm, kind of talking about relationship to to mothers, like one of the things that I really keep in mind is that I'm like, the gender expression, the gender the understandings of gender I have are time-bound and place-bound too. Hmm. Um, like she looks at my expression of gender and she feels the same judgment that I might feel about hers. Yeah. She feels like I'm confused and out of touch. Yeah. I feel like she's confused and out of touch. My grandmother um, taught me this saying, which is like, the devil doesn't know because he's the devil. He knows because he's old. And it's like kind of a Mexican saying. Um, i say, I've never and, heard that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so she has wisdom, even with like, you know, the stuff that is so new that came out of like women's, the women's rights movement, like women's liberation, second wave feminism, right? She she doesn't know yeah. that world, right? But like, she understands systems in a way that i that are only really intellectual for me at this point hmm. because those systems she grew up with they're the same systems i inherited and so she lived with that boot overtly on her throat yeah and for me i had to read books to understand even see that boot
0: yeah yeah but
5: but anyway like i mean in terms of the trajectory and growing like i mean i think that you know i do feel like anna could have been you or me. Like, yeah. I, mean, I just, I think I see the complexity of all of it where you kind of like full steam ahead. You're like, jump in. She's at Columbia. She's doing her thing. And then you have this kind of rude awakening that as much as you don't relate to maybe where you grew up, you have similar points of tension with the people who are now in your in your social circle and in your in your professional circle whatever and then I think what's hard is is you've gotta there's a lot of things that are hard about like growing up in that trajectory and like one of the hardest things is how much freedom there is. Like, you can pick and choose. Like, it's like, you've got these two worlds. They're both robust. They both have upsides and they both have downsides. And you kind of, you get the freedom to be like, I choose this from here and I choose this from here. And then, you know, I think like part of the maturity process is really carving out your own femininity, your own meaning making and um and I think one of the hardest things for me has been parsing out and I could see Anna on this trajectory too where she comes to a point where she like forgives her mother and that and honestly it's her leaving that gives her the space to be gracious. And so I think like similarly As we mature and we grow, it's really difficult to look back, um, especially when you have a – like, when you get your sense of Latinidad Mm -hmm. from your family and your family is toxic – and it's abusive it's really difficult to go back and you have to go back to like the ground zero right like the, the shambles and you've got to go through every I mean I think of like the images coming to mind it's like it's like that house that has fallen apart after an earthquake mm-hmm. and you got to go through and you got to like get rid of the stuff that like the asbestos got to put that over there Yeah, the like wood chunks <laughs> from my the house uh-huh. over there and then this picture yeah. that like means a lot to me I'm keeping that and then more asbestos brick, I don't know, whatever your house is made of, Um, putting that in a box, going to go away, putting that in the trash. And then that moment where you're like, oh, that diary that like I wrote when I was a kid and like, oh, that meal, that dish that like I remember. And I think what's hard is like, it's never not going to be painful. Yeah. And I think like that is truly the source of tension for people of color who are like really walking between worlds and have one foot in one world. Because pretty much if we're that person, it's because our family hurt us yeah. most likely. It's not just that like the allure of white culture was just so like irresistible. <laughs> we couldn't like, re- it's like normally like we're going there because we feel like really hurt yeah. by where we came from. And like, and, and, and a lot of us dealt with that through achieving our fucking asses off yeah. and that lands at us in white world. And so like our journey is really that like, you know, one of the things that I grew up with all the time that my family Taught me was like life is hard, life is hard, life is hard. And I was like, no, it's not, you're making it hard. Mm-hmm. And like a, 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 all of them have to do with the choices that you've made. And and like that resentment and that rage. And then at 38, you know, kind of like just coming into the realization that like I made totally different decisions than they did. And I am I am left with the reality that like life is hard. Like there is no escaping. Mm. And I think when you really talk about the the difference between Mexican culture and white culture, and I think that, that really what Kahneman was saying was like, life is not fair. Life is brutal. Don't even go out there because that the world is a terrifying place. Yeah. You need to stay here and to the known quantity because the world is scarier than you can even imagine. And And Anna's like, nothing could be worse than being here with you. Which I can relate, girl, I can relate to that. Um, and then you got into the world, but then you land in that awareness that Godman has. And then what do you do with that knowledge? Are you gonna pass it on and, and create a toxic relationship with the people who you love with your potential children or not?
0: Yeah. God, that's so true. You know, I was reflecting on on just how important this movie was when it came out and how it continues to be so important. It's the first movie of its kind. that it was directed by, a you know, a white Colombian woman. Yeah. A Latin American cast, you know, various countries represented. I mean, America yes. Ferrera's Honduran, you know, it launched her career. I'm, yes. I, I think I underplay the impact that this movie had on me watching it at the age that I watched it. And even today, the impact that it has on me. And I'm just I'm really curious to know what your answer to this would be, which is what do you think 38 year old Anna would be up to? Like, what do you think she is doing?
5: Girl, 38 year old Anna has been through therapy. She reads self-help books. <laughs> uh huh. Um, she's married to a white man, but has feelings about it. Um, like she knows he's like, she, she's like accepted that like, all right, this is like, I mean, I think she came to the, the moment where her ancestors were like, this is not a battle you're going to win, girl. And it's okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
5: And and, uh, and she's like, all right, I'm just going to let myself have this. I'm going to stop trying to – I'm going to stop dedicating my life to, like, decolonizing everything. And I'm going to dedicate <laughs> it to, like, the three things I actually feel like I can decolonize. Yeah. And she is like – I don't know. I'm like, is she a badass entrepreneur? Probably. She's definitely, like, a disruptor, yeah. whatever she's doing. Um. I feel like if I met Anna, Anna would be a friend. Anna would be somebody who, like, if she were in a room – I would spot her, and we'd probably be members if we live if she lived in San Francisco. We'd be members of the same like Arts and Letters Women's Organization or whatever. Um, <laughs>
0: you know? I love it. I think we've given Patricia Cardoso, the director, plenty of fodder for a, a sequel. I'm just saying, you, uh, you wrote great. the script right there, America ah! Ferrera. Why not?
5: We wrote the script. <laughs>
1: Virgie Tovar interviewed by Lily Percy. You also heard from Dinez Smith, Tony Banut, Shea Serrano, and Emily Vanderwerf. Listen to the full episodes with them and others at This Movie Changed Me wherever podcasts are found. The full third and final season, which is now unfolding, also includes conversations about the movies Lady Bird, The Way We Were, and Love and Basketball. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Drummerhausen, Erin Colasacco,
2: Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson,
1: Suzette Burley,
2: Zach Rose,
5: Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold,
0: Jale Arcavon,
7: Padraig O Ben Cott, Gotham Schreikishen,
1: and Lily Banowitz. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
6: On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.